On Wednesday, the New York Times issued an editorial filled with impotent rage and unexplored angst over President Trump. Supreme Court nomination of Judge Neil Gorsuch of the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. They called Gorsuch's seat a stolen seat since Republicans refused to grant Democrats an up or down vote on Judge Merrick Garland, President Obama's nominee to fill Antonin Scalia's seat. Instead of recognizing that the Constitution gives the Senate the ability to determine whether to vote on a given candidate or not, the Times suggested that Senate Republicans, quote, took an empty Supreme Court seat hostage. Inaccurate, since usually there's a ransom demand with a hostage, and Republicans didn't have one. Then, the Times characterized Gorsuch, a man unanimously approved for the Tenth Circuit by a Senate that included Barack Obama and Joe Biden, as extreme. Of course. Here's the New York Times, quote, President Obama had a great opportunity to repair some of that damage by nominating a moderate candidate for the vacancy, which was created when Justice Antonin Scalia died last February. Instead, he chose Neil Gorsuch, a very conservative judge from the Federal Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit, whose jurisprudence and writing style are often compared to those of Scalia. You mean Republicans appointed someone like Scalia to fill his seat? What horror! The Times acknowledged that normally they'd have no leg to stand on with regard to complaining about Gorsuch. But these, they say, are not normal times. The destructive lesson Senate Republicans taught is that obstruction pays off. Yes, it does. That's part of the constitutional system. And that's not actually a problem. The give and take, the grind and groan of politics, that's how the system is supposed to work. If Democrats don't like the outcome, tough. The Times is actually upset that the Supreme Court may no longer be a super legislature of leftists rewriting the Constitution to fit leftist ends. Here's their real complaint. Quote, if Judge Gorsuch is confirmed, the court will once again have a majority of justices appointed by Republican presidents, as it has for nearly half a century. For starters, that spells big trouble for public sector unions and environment regulations and women's access to contraception. If Trump gets a chance to name another justice, the consequences could be much more dire. Or maybe Democrats could stop passing unconstitutional laws and demanding that the Supreme Court greenlight them. But that would be asking Democrats to, you know, stop being Democrats. Perhaps the most foolish suggestion from the Times is the notion that Trump should actually govern like Hillary Clinton after beating her. Why? Because he refuses to, quote, acknowledge his historic unpopularity and his nearly three million vote loss to Hillary Clinton, a wiser president faced with such circumstances, would govern with humility and respect for the views of all Americans, unquote. If the situation were reversed, does anyone think the Times would be calling for Hillary to nominate a moderate? Or would they be pushing for a gung-ho revision of the Constitution by judicial fiat, proclaiming a win is a win? Look, Trump promised a textualist for the court. He won. He fulfilled that promise. The Senate is doing its job. The Times is doing its job, too. Whining endlessly in incoherent fashion about losing. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Yes, what you're seeing is reality. That's right. See, a bet is a bet. And uh, when I make bets with cultural correspondent Michael Knowles about whether Donald Trump is actually going to appoint a conservative to the court, and then I lose, I fulfill my end of the bet. Now, all I ask is that if I end up being right when Trump does bad things, then other people recognize that's true. But I'm honest. I was wrong. I was totally wrong about this. I said there was zero chance that Trump would nominate a textualist to the court because he didn't really care about the court, and also because Mitch McConnell was not going to invoke the nuclear option. We'll see about McConnell, but I have never been happier to be wrong. Donald Trump's pick of Neil Gorsuch is an excellent, excellent pick. Good for Donald Trump for proving me wrong. I hope he continues to do so. We'll get to all that in a second. First, we have to say thank you to our sponsors today over at Blue Apron. So, if you're somebody who is interested in cooking your own meals, but you don't know what recipes to use and you don't want to go shopping for the ingredients, that really is the most time-consuming part, going to the market and trying to find all the fresh ingredients, trying to figure out what the recipe actually says. Blue Apron solves all of that for you. So they have a new recipe every single day, and they give you, they actually send you the, the 
ingredients packaged for your house. They send you three free meals free right now with free shipping. If you go to blueapron.com right now slash Shapiro, blueapron.com slash Shapiro. It's less than 10 bucks per person per meal. All of the meals are cooked in less than 40 minutes. And it's flexible. You can redo recipes you like. You can discard recipes that you don't. Every one of them comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card. And every ingredient is fresh. A lot of my friends are using Blue Apron. They all say that it's fantastic. They say the food that comes out is great. And it all tastes fresh. And you can also tailor the recipes to your own liking because they send you the recipe, but it's your kitchen, so you can do what you want. Blue Apron is a better way to cook. Again, it saves you the trouble of the shopping and the figuring out of the recipes, and everything is super fresh. And right now, blueapron.com slash Shapiro, blueapron.com slash Shapiro. Use slash Shapiro so they know that we sent you. Plus, if you do, you get three meals free right now, and uh, their their meal list is really terrific. I mean, the, their upcoming meals... Uh, the, it, Mushroom and chipotle pepper enchilada with lime sour cream. I mean, it's like gourmet stuff, and you can make it in your own kitchen really first rate, according to everybody I know who uses it, and it's taking over L.A. So check it out, blueaprons.com slash Shapiro. Okay, so the big news of the day, of course, is that Donald Trump fulfills his promise. And as I said, and I will repeat, I got it wrong, and I am very, very happy that I got it wrong. I said right after Trump was elected that uh, I was uh, that I would be— more than overjoyed if Trump would prove me wrong on things. And this is something he proved me wrong about. He went out and he picked an actual actual textualist. And so in honor of Michael Knowles defeating me in a bet, instead of firing him, which I actually do technically have the power to do, uh, I decided to fulfill my end of the bet. Also, I know that he he was celebrating a Donald Trump executive order that apparently came down last night. Um, That, yeah. um, So I'm not gonna pay up on all our bets. That's the, so he can just forget about that. That's not going to happen. For those who are, who are listening to this later, uh, it's Donald Trump signing an executive order that says I'm going to pay Michael Knowles $800 or $400. That's, that's not happening. Again, he should just be happy that he escaped firing for, for being correct on this. In any case, uh, we'll, we'll start with, uh, with, with Judge Gorsuch. So Judge Donald Trump comes out, and yesterday's a whole bunch of hubbub because it comes down to Thomas Hardiman from the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals versus Judge Neil Gorsuch. Uh, or Hardiman is from the 7th Circuit, I believe, and, and Gorsuch is from the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals. And so Hardiman has no record. Uh, there's no long-standing kind of judicial philosophy you can attribute to Hardiman. And Hardiman is recommended by Trump's sister. So all of the signs, therefore, point to Hardiman. Instead, he picks Gorsuch. Very, very smart move. Smart move for a number of reasons. Politically, it's very smart because it shores up his base. You know, Trump's had a chaotic first 10 days, to say the least, and this shores up his base. I would not be surprised if in the next couple of weeks, Donald Trump starts to push something like a trillion-dollar infrastructure package, saying, look, I gave you your judge, now give me my infrastructure package. That would be the smart political move if he wants to triangulate. So just pointing that out now. But you got to be overjoyed if you're a conservative about Judge Gorsuch. Now, I want to get one other thing out of the way here, and that is everybody is already breaking out the chisels for Rushmore for Trump because of all of this. Listen, a great thing is a great thing. I'm wearing the freaking hat. What do you want from me? Okay, it's, it's, it's terrific. You know, good things happen, and that's, that's fantastic and good for Trump. Again, for the ninth time already in the first four minutes of the program, I was wrong about this. So good for Donald Trump. Now, there's a player on the Colorado Rockies last year. His name was Trevor Story. In the first three games, he had home runs. Did he finish with 162 home runs? Okay, this is one of the mistakes people make in, in evaluating sports. Somebody goes on a hot streak, and the idea is they're never going to miss again. Listen, I'm happy to evaluate Donald Trump in two years and determine whether his presidency is a success or a failure. In the first 10 days so far, it's a wild success, obviously. Okay, so we'll determine in two years whether it is an overall success or failure. At that point, then you will get an ultimate I was wrong from me if I was wrong. But I'm not going to say that yet because 
we're 10 days in, for God's sake, okay? Trevor's story is not Babe Ruth. He finished the season with 27 home runs. He did not finish with 162 home runs. But when a good thing happens, a good thing happens. Okay, so here's Donald. So Donald Trump does, leading up to this, what a lot of people think he is going to do, which is he brings in Hardiman, and then he brings in Gorsuch, and then they think there's going to be an actual rose ceremony. And so the media is all abuzz with this. And then it turns out that Trump actually does something great, not just picking Gorsuch, doing it in a dignified way. So he has the ceremony last night where he hands the rose to Gorsuch, basically, but it's really dignified. It's really low-key. He does it professionally. Here's Donald Trump introducing Judge Gorsuch. When Justice Scalia passed away suddenly last February... I made a promise to the American people. If I were elected president, I would find the very best judge in the country for the Supreme Court. I promise to select someone who respects our laws and is representative of our Constitution and who loves our Constitution, and someone who will interpret them as written. Okay, I don't know who's writing his stuff for him, but it's great. Okay, this is all terrific. And again, do I think that Trump deeply cares about this stuff? No, but I don't care whether he cares about the stuff since all I care about is the result, right? I don't care about what his thinking process is. The result is great, and the result is Judge Gorsuch. So Gorsuch then comes to the stage, and here's what Gorsuch has to say about the Constitution. Standing here in a house of history and acutely aware of my own imperfections, I pledge that if I am confirmed, I will do all my powers permit be a faithful servant of the Constitution and laws of this great country. Okay, and then he continues along those lines by saying, he talks about Justice Scalia, who he was friends with. He said that he cried when Scalia died. Here's what he said about Justice Scalia. The towering judges that have served in this particular seat of the Supreme Court, including Antonin Scalia and Robert Jackson, are much in my mind at this moment. Justice Scalia was a lion of the law. And he went on to talk about all the things he liked about Justice Scalia. Now, here's what you need to know about Gorsuch. So the reason I'm excited about Gorsuch, and, and I, have a, I actually do have a good track record as far as picking Supreme Court judges. I'm the only person that I know who came out against Justice Roberts because I said that Roberts didn't have enough of a record. I like Gorsuch. I think Gorsuch is going to be very much like Alito. He'll actually be to the right of Alito. And the reason I say this is because... From what we can tell, from what we can tell based on the best available evidence, this is a guy who actually has a coherent judicial philosophy. And his judicial philosophy is that you ought to read the Constitution as it was meant when it was written. That's his philosophy, which is Scalia's philosophy as well. So he's, he's great on a lot of issues. So he ruled that Obamacare could not stamp on the, on the Little Sisters of the Poor, for example. He was on the court that ruled that, the appeals court that ruled that. Here's what he wrote in that case, quote, All of us face the problem of complicity. All of us must answer for ourselves whether and to what degree we are willing to be involved in the wrongdoing of others. For some, religion provides an essential source of guidance both about what constitutes wrongful conduct and the degree to which those who assist others in committing wrongful conduct themselves bear moral culpability. This statute violates their faith, representing a degree of complicity their religion disallows. He's also ruled that the Ten Commandments is not establishment of religion in violation of the Constitution when put in public places, which is obvious. He's stood in favor of the constitutionality of the death penalty. He's ruled in favor of strength in Second Amendment rights, and here's what he wrote in 2005 at National Review, quote, <clears throat> American liberals have become addicted to the courtroom, relying on judges and lawyers rather than elected leaders in the ballot box as the primary means of affecting their social agenda on everything from gay marriage to assisted suicide to the use of vouchers for private school education. This overweening addiction to the courtroom as the place to debate social policy is bad for the country and bad for the judiciary. Gorsuch has said, 
in a lecture just last April, that Scalia's career reminds us of the difference between judges and legislators. He says judges should not be looking to appeal to their own moral convictions, but instead should apply the law as it is, focusing backward, not forward. That's important because very often you see people on the left of the court say that the law is designed to allow judges to look forward. He's saying we have to focus backward, not forward, looking to the text, structure, and history to decide what a reasonable reader at the time of the events in question would have understood the law to be not to decide cases based on their own moral convictions or the policy consequences they believe might serve society best. That's a pretty hard slap in that lecture at Justice Roberts, who rewrote the law in Obamacare in order to achieve a result that he thought was best. In one area, actually, Gorsuch is better than Scalia. He's not as good a writer as Scalia, because Scalia is one of the great judicial writers of all time. But in one area, he's better, and that's what they call Chevron deference. So Chevron deference, there's a case from 1984, I believe, uh, it's called Chevron, and the basic case was that there was an environmental regulation that was interpreted by the EPA in a certain way, and people sued, and they said the EPA is interpreting this law wrong, and the EPA judge that those people were wrong, so these people went to court and they sued the the EPA. And the EPA said, listen, we're the ones tasked with interpreting the law. Our interpretation is reasonable. You don't get to review our interpretation of the law because our interpretation is reasonable. And the court said, okay, Gorsuch does something different. He says, no, that, that allows for impermissible abdication of duty by Congress. Because if Congress were to send a law to the EPA saying, we want you to interpret all environmental policy, That doesn't now mean that the EPA gets to be its own legislature. It's Congress's job to pass laws. It's the executive's branch to implement them. If the executive branch implements them in ways that are not according to what a reasonable definition of the statute would be, then the the judiciary can can overrule them. If they they don't pick the most reasonable interpretation, the judiciary can overrule them. In 2016, he said, quote, that the Chevron rule, excuse me, permits executive bureaucracies to swallow huge amounts of core judicial and legislative power and concentrate federal power in a way that seems more than a little difficult to square with the constitution of the framers' design. He's also a federalist. He's a big fan of states' rights. So Gorsuch is a terrific pick. There's, there, I don't see any particular red flags for Gorsuch as opposed to a lot of the uh, the other judges who have been named. Even Pryor had some red flags. I think Gorsuch has a cleaner record. Uh, but we'll see. You know, in the hearings, it, maybe the red flag will crop up. But I don't see anything wrong with Gorsuch. Good for Donald Trump. Good for Donald Trump. Good for Donald Trump. This is a home run pick for Donald Trump. I'm not sure that he could have done any better. And he again, he comes to conclusions, Gorsuch does, based on the law, not based on what he would want the law to be, which sometimes means that conservatives aren't going to like the outcome. But that's not what the Supreme Court is for. The Supreme Court is not just to get a conservative outcome, it's to get a constitutional outcome. He's, uh, he voted the right way on Hobby Lobby. Most important uh, for, for Trump's purposes, he was easily confirmed in 2006. He was confirmed unanimously. They didn't even take a roll call vote. They took a voice vote on Gorsuch, um, which means Obama voted for him, Biden voted for him, they all voted for him. Okay, we have to pause and say thank you to another one of our advertisers. So if you love podcasts and you're interested in listening to fictional podcasts, which are, are great, I, like, I enjoy the entertainment podcast side of the, of the internet as well, uh, there's a great one from Wondery called Secret Crimes and Audio Tapes. It's a wonder, you can get the uh, Stitcher, the Wondery app on Android, wherever you listen to podcasts. It's Secrets, Crimes, and Audio Tape on iTunes. So every week, 
they uh, they drop a new episode and they do a, a whole series of audio dramas. So right now they're doing one by Margaret Atwood called The Handmaid's Tale, which is about this dystopian future where the government of the United States has been overthrown and replaced with this this tyranny. Uh, and uh, the tyranny has some implications, particularly for women. The Handmaid's Tale uh, it's it's worth listening to, and and it's certainly politically uh, it's certainly a political hot button issue story. I'll have to critique it at some point, the actual Handmaid's Tale from Margaret Atwood, but um, they do a beautiful job of really producing it and making it sound professional and making it entertaining and awesome. So it's, uh, it's been, so again, right now it's called The Handmaid's Tale is that's the story they're doing, but the actual podcast, which, and they change the story every few weeks, the actual podcast is Secrets, Crimes, and Audio Tapes. Make sure you go to subscribe right now, wherever you listen to podcasts, Secrets, Crimes, and Audio Tapes. Go check it out right now. Okay. So, Republicans naturally are responding to all of this with with great excitement as well. They should. So, Ted Cruz comes out. He says, Neil Gorsuch is a home run. He's absolutely right. And tonight, President Trump honored that commitment. He followed through on the commitment he made. I think Judge Gorsuch is a home run. Uh, He has a decade of proven experience on the Court of Appeals, being faithful to the Constitution, following the law protecting the Bill of Rights and our fundamental liberties. And I think that record will yield a swift confirmation in the United States Senate. And we'll find out about the swift confirmation. But to talk about what the Democrats are going to do about this, you're going to have to go over to dailywire.com right now and subscribe. And if you want to watch the rest of this episode with me being humiliated by wearing the MAGA hat, then you're going to have to go over and subscribe right now. $8 a month will get you that, will get you the pleasure of my pain. Uh, and you can also get the annual subscription right now. You get a free copy, signed copy of my book, True Allegiance. And uh, you can go over and check it out right now. Or you can listen later at iTunes and SoundCloud uh, and, and check it out there. We are the largest conservative podcast in the United States. Okay, so like everybody's gone from Facebook and YouTube now, right? Okay. All right, so here's the. <laughs> so I'm still just as happy, but damn it, I'm sick wearing that hat. Okay, so uh, so here, so Mike Lee also says Gorsuch is a is a great pick, uh, and uh, and Gorsuch is a great pick. So Mike Lee from Utah, who I think is probably the best person in the Senate. I've met Senator Lee. I think that he's a real stalwart for conservatism and constitutionalism. Uh, and here is what Mike Lee had to say about the Gorsuch pick. Well, this is an outstanding nominee. I've argued in front of this judge. Uh, when he was sitting on the Tenth Circuit, where he, he now sits, he's an outstanding judge, extraordinary. There's no one better. He's the kind of judge every lawyer wants to argue in front of, because he's the kind of judge who reads every opinion, every brief, every citation, and he seeks to decide each case on the basis of the law and facts in front of him. This is the kind of judge we want sitting on the U.S. Supreme Court, someone who reads the law in an effort to decide what it says rather than what he wishes it said. And that's exactly, okay, so how are the Democrats going to respond to this? Well, they're going to respond by being totally insane. Totally insane. So Nancy Pelosi, whose brain has now been thoroughly frozen over by the Botox injected into her face, it's actually infused into her neurons, and so they can't fire anymore. And that's how you end up with quotes like the one we're about to play here. Here's Nancy Pelosi talking about why Gorsuch is terrible. But as far as your family is concerned, and all of the, uh, uh, if you breathe air, drink water, eat food, take medicine, or in any other way interact uh, with the courts, this is a very bad decision. Well outside the mainstream of American legal thought. Not committed to Supreme Court precedents. Okay, so I love that. If you breathe air, Gorsuch is bad for you. 
And Gorsuch is going to come and he's going to strangle you to death in the night. He lives in the closet and he's going to come out at night and he's going to take a piano wire and wrap it around your neck and say, Michael Corleone says hello. Or actually, Donald Trump says hello, mega. Right? They're like, this is so ridiculous. But this is what the Democrats are doing. What they really, if the Democrats were smart, and it's possible, by the way, they won't actually filibuster, that a lot of this is talk, they have to signal to their base that they hate everything Trump is doing and that they are going to do their best to stop all of his agenda. If they're smart, and this is something we should also note, if they're smart, they won't filibuster Gorsuch. They'll save it for the replacement of an actual swing vote. So remember, Scalia seat is being filled. This still leaves the court with four conservatives, right? And that's counting Roberts, who's really dicey. So that still leaves the court with really three solid conservatives, Alito, Thomas, and, uh, and Gorsuch. So the, the left, if they're smart, they'll just say, okay, we'll let this one go. Next time this comes up, that's when we'll go nuclear. That's when we'll, that's when we'll imp- use the filibuster. But instead, they can't help themselves. They're going to lose their minds and try and turn this into a partisan hack job, even though Gorsuch is well-respected across the aisle. And again, Barack Obama voted for him for the 10th Circuit. Joe Biden voted for him for the 10th Circuit. Half the Ron Wyden, who came out and said he'd be a horrible pick, voted for him for the 10th Circuit, so he had no such objections before. You know, even Dana Bash and John King on CNN were forced to praise Gorsuch, and neither of them are real big Trump fans. This clip eight. This is how it's supposed to be done. <laughs> I mean, this is done to the T. Uh, actually, even more so than we've seen in the past by inviting the leadership of the, of the congressional leadership Republicans to uh, to the White House to do it in this sort of with the flair of the dramatic as as he did walking down uh, the, the cross hall and then of course asking him to come up. But but more importantly uh, than the way it's done, it's what is done. You know, a lot of times during the campaign, we would ask, why on earth would conservatives, you know, really hardcore conservatives, back somebody like Donald Trump and work so hard for him? This is why. Because that is not the person Hillary Clinton, if she were president, would be putting on the bench, not even close, and be putting on the bench to replace somebody who, as he just said, the, the new nominee said, is, was considered a lion, and that is Antonin Scalia. I mean, so much about this election was about jobs and the economy and so much other, you know, about America first, but it was also about this. He is a, a conservative. And that's 100% true. So Trump kept, kept his promise on this, and it's going to give him a lot of political capital to play with. Now, it's your job as a conservative and my job as a conservative to make sure that he doesn't blow all of the political capital that he just earned with the right on hookers and booze. Okay, that means no, no trillion dollar infrastructure packages, no allowing him to just go off on, on his frivolous fancies about tariffs just because he gave you a Supreme Court pick that you liked. Okay, bad things don't become good just because the person who did them is is good, and the same is true in reverse. Okay, the bad things don't become good just because you like Donald Trump's pick on Neil Gorsuch. So this is don't be lulled to sleep just because something really good just happened, but acknowledge that something really good just happened. On the left, though, they are losing their damn minds. I mean, they they have they have decided that the only way that they can win here is to go more and more extreme as opposed to saving their fire. You know, John Paul Jones was supposed to have said, don't fire until you see the whites of their eyes, right? But the Democrats are firing when the, the enemy isn't even in sight. Like, this is not even an important issue for Democrats. It isn't. Okay, Justice Scalia's seat's about to be filled by somebody like Justice Scalia. Nothing really changed fundamentally. doesn't matter. Democrats are losing their minds. Tim Kaine, he came out, he said, we have to fight in the streets against Trump. In the streets! And by golly, I'm not going to do it. But I'm going to tell you to do it. 
But how does the party rebuild? How do you prevent overreach in a situation like this? How do you prevent a continuation of the bubble in a situation like this? And how does the party reclaim its reach across the country while fighting these battles? Um, well, let me talk about continuation of the bubble, Mika. This is something I'm so excited about. I, I saw that uh, Howard Dween, uh, Dean tweeted at me the other day, Tim, the base is getting ahead of the leaders. That's exactly backward. Mm -hmm. We are so excited that the American public is energized to speak out against the abuses of this administration. Uh, Democratic senators led health care rallies, Save Our Health Care, mm -hmm. on Martin Luther King Day in about 75 cities around the country, including Richmond. Tens of thousands of people rallied to Save Our Health Care. Then the Women's March that was um, organized at a grassroots uh, label. Then Between people the coming out and off? protested these orders. Like, yeah, so the let's, way let's we stop him because I'm sorry, I can't, I can't do more Tim Kaine. And neither could America, which is why he's not vice president right now. Uh, the Democratic senator uh, named Hirono, uh, she's, she's saying that Donald Trump is just a, like a slaveholder. She's a Democrat from Hawaii, and she said that his executive order on immigration is just like slavery. I mean, this is how extreme the Democrats are going here. Uh, no, because at this point, I'm very focused on what uh, his actions are. Actions speak louder than words, and right now, every goes by. We're not even into week two of the Trump presidency and already he's issued uh, an executive order that has raised concerns all over the world and, and including, of course, our own country. And that is his executive order on immigration that targets Muslims. And every time we go down that path to target a, a minority group, you know, history proves us to be very, very wrong. So it happened with American Indians, slavery, with the Chinese Exclusion Act, with the Japanese internment. And therefore, if we don't stand oh, can we talk about for a second who actually did? We can stop it here. Yeah. Can we talk about who actually did Japanese internment? Oh, that was FDR. Yeah, that was, that was your party. <laughs> Which party was the party of slavery? Oh, yeah, sorry. The party of slavery was the Democrats. My bad. It's not like slavery. It's not like Japanese internment. doesn't matter. The Democrats have lost their ever-loving minds. Debbie Wasserman Schultz, or as we like to call her, the, uh, the Democratic Jar Jar Binks, uh, she says, Jar Jar Binks must be a Democrat. He's too annoying to be a Republican, I assume. But, but Debbie Wasserman Schultz says that Donald Trump thinks he's a dictator. A dictator, I tell you. We're on the verge of Hitlerism. It's coming. Hitler. Okay, go, go, Debbie. And, you know, the, the president's tweet this morning was, uh, was very interesting because, and telling because it shows that he believes that he was elected as a dictator. There is an advise and consent role for the United States Senate, and that is what they are doing. He doesn't just get to have his nominations rubber stamped. Okay, so no, he doesn't get to have his nominations rubber stamped. And this is the, the next point, is that Democrats are going to try and, and hold up everything that Trump does. Schumer says that he's going to lead a revolt against Gorsuch. He's going to try and filibuster Gorsuch. And Chris Matthews, I'm going to say, the Democrats, they got to filibuster. And they're, they're never going to be able to get this through. They're going to filibuster it. Get up, come out of that show. And I say this kind of stuff. I think this is going to come down, Chris, to a, a sad denouement. I think it's going to take uh, 60 votes to get this uh, approved. And I think the Republicans will have their rank and file. 52 votes will be there. But I don't think the Democrats are going to give them a single vote, which means this will go to a filibuster. And then 
and I hate to cut to the chase, but I will. It's going to be up to Mitch McConnell. Yep. He's going to have to choose between something he deeply believes in. He really believes in as an institutionalist in the Senate. The need to make the Senate different than the House. To have a filibuster requirement of 60 votes. That keeps it from being too extreme in either direction. Requiring cabinet members. Because everybody has to go through that 60 vote requirement, that threshold. He's not going to give that away easily. Trump says he will, but I don't think Mitch McConnell will. So in the end, it's going to be Mitch McConnell making a decision. Do I give up the filibuster rule, which requires 60 votes to get something through. If that means giving up something I believe and do it just for Trump to get his first nominee through, I don't think he'll do it. I think Mitch McConnell will hold fast and say it's going to be 60 votes. This fellow, he's probably a good guy, very much like Antonin Scalia, a good person, whatever you think of him, politically and ideologically. And I don't think it's going to get through because I don't think, I don't think they're going to get 60 votes because I don't think they'll get a single Democratic vote. Now, before I make fun of Mitch, before I make fun of Chris Matthews a little bit more about getting up where he's at a show and you know, get my rumple suit on, take a tie that apparently I stole from a dead body in a crypt somewhere, I just put it on, and then I come in here, and I'm as I say, and I ask you what you think about the judges and everything. Before I make fun of him some more, I actually think that he may not be wrong. In fact, I said during the campaign that I thought that he might not be wrong, that in the end, this was not going to come down to Donald Trump. It was always going to come down to Mitch McConnell. And I specifically asked Hugh Hewitt, would he please ask Senator McConnell, he talks to McConnell a lot, please ask Senator McConnell, will you invoke the nuclear option? Now, it's not just as quite as easy as invoking the nuclear option if the Democrats decide to filibuster. Because remember, you have to have 51 votes to invoke the nuclear option. Right, you have to have 51 votes, and that means right now Democrat Republicans only have 52. What happens if John McCain, Lindsey Graham, and Susan Collins from Maine decide they're not going to go along with the nuclear option? Then you get the gang of the gang of 14. Right, that's when you get what happened back in 2005. Democrats were filibustering a bunch of judges, and John McCain led the gang of 14, and they ended up making a bunch of concessions to Democrats in exchange for Democrats approving some judges. If the Democrats really decide to play hardball and Republicans won't use the nuclear option, you could see Gorsuch's nomination actually killed. And you could see him replaced with someone like Thomas Hardiman. So it's a little bit early yet to say that I'm wrong about McConnell. Okay, I was wrong about Trump. I didn't think Trump would pick somebody good. Trump picked somebody good. But it's a little early to say whether I'm wrong about McConnell. And anybody who thinks that McConnell's a lion of the Senate, all I'm saying is let's withhold judgment for just a second. And, you know, let's just, let's just hold up for a second on that. Okay, so bottom line. Good for Donald Trump. Good for Donald Trump. Great pick, Neil Gorsuch. And hopefully Trump has enough brains to kind of stay out of the limelight for the next few days and let this play out and just enjoy the the halo effect that is going to surround him over all of this. He's ably shifted the debate from his immigration executive order rollout to something else, right? He's ably shifted it away from that and toward the, the Supreme Court. That is a smart political move. I hope for the sake of the country and for the sake of the party. I hope that Donald Trump is smart enough to just enjoy, bask in the glow of all of this rather than step putting his foot in, in, the, next, in the next poop pile. That would, be, that would be my preference. And it should be your preference, too, if you want to see Donald Trump do a lot of conservative things. And again, I will just reiterate, with regard to the hat routine, I am more than willing, as I've shown, I think, about a thousand times so far, to admit when I got something wrong. I only hope that intellectual honesty pervades the, the entire political sphere so when people get things wrong... They admit it, because otherwise this is going to be a very long four years. If, if it's just religious belief that every time Trump does something right, on the one side, if every time Trump does something right, that means that he's the greatest president who ever lived, and every time he does something wrong, he's the worst president who ever was, then we're never going to be able to get to the truth, which is that some things he does are going to be good, and some things he does are going to be bad, and today he did something really, really good. So thank you, Mr. President, for fulfilling a campaign promise that you made, and that I didn't think you were going to. So good for you, and thank you. Okay, time for some things I like. 
and then some things I hate, and then we'll talk a little bit of Bibble. So, things I like. So, we've been doing Shakespeare this week. So, the there's a great production of Julius Caesar. This is the one they showed you in school, but you should go back and rewatch it because it really is good. And what's amusing about this uh, is that when Marlon Brando was cast as Mark Antony, people thought Marlon Brando couldn't act. There's a whole group of people who, who thought that Marlon Brando engaged in what they called the, called the torn t-shirt school of acting. Right, that he liked to yell and that he mumbled a lot. Marlon Brown, because he, he, he did like to mumble a lot on screen. And so they didn't know if he could actually do Shakespeare. And it turns out, of course, that Marlon Brando is one of the great actors of the 20th century. And so here is Marlon Brando and what really is his first Shakespearean role doing, doing Mark Antony. And it's phenomenal. It's first rate. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is often turned with their bones, so let it be with Caesar. The noble Brutus hath told you Caesar was ambitious. If it was so, it was a grievous fault, and grievously hath Caesar answered it. Here on the leave of Brutus and the rest, for Brutus is an honorable man. So are they all, all honorable men. Come I to speak in Caesar's funeral. He was my friend, faithful and just to me. But Brutus says he was ambitious. And Brutus is an honorable man. He hath brought many captives home to Rome whose ransoms did the general coffers fill. Did this and Caesar seem ambitious? When did the poor have cried, Caesar hath wept? Ambition should be made of sterner stuff. Yet Brutus says he was ambitious, and Brutus is an honorable man. You all did see that on the Lupercal, I thrice presented him a kingly crown, which he did thrice refuse. Was this ambition? Yet Brutus says he was ambitious, and sure he is an honorable man. I speak not to disprove what Brutus spoke, but here I am to speak what I do know. You only love him once, not without cause. What cause withholds you then to mourn for him? Oh, judgment, thou art led to brutish beasts, and men have lost their reason. Okay, we can stop it there. It, I mean, it's great. It's a great performance. The, the movie itself is really a great adaptation of Julius Caesar. It's shortened from the original play, obviously. Um, and the entire cast is great. James Mason uh, is Brutus. I believe John Gielgud is, uh, is Caesar. It's really a first-rate movie. It's, it's, it's worth watching. And it has a lot to say about our current political situation because what the play is really about is whether the people of Rome can deal with being a republic or not. That's really the, the undertone of the entire play of Julius Caesar. The people never really play a part in, in, the, in the play. It's really about Brutus, and it's about Mark Antony, and it's about Caesar. But the real undertone is, is Brutus the hero or is Brutus the villain? And, and he doesn't really, Shakespeare doesn't really take sides. Shakespeare doesn't really say Brutus was the hero or Brutus was the villain. He says, here's what he's trying to do. Was it too much? Was, are, are people really up for a republic or are they too worshipful of a particular figure? Are they too willing to fall into demagoguery? And that, I think, is an open question for forever. I don't think it's just unique to our time. I think it's true forever. Okay, time for some things that I hate. Let's do it. So one of the things that the left has refused to acknowledge is that the left created Donald Trump. Okay, Donald Trump is a creation of celebrity culture. 
He's never held political office before. I mean, this is a guy who was a TV show star. He was a reality show star, and now he's president of the United States. They refuse to acknowledge that political humor got Trump to where he is, that when you have an entire fake news, you know, it's funny. The left now talks about fake news. They are the ones who created fake news with Jon Stewart, right? They used to call it fake news. He used to say, I'm not a news show. I'm a fake news show, right? I'm a comedy show, but people used to get their news from Jon Stewart. So he, they created this fake news idea, which was that that you can fib or you can twist or you can joke, and that still constitutes news. And so Jon Stewart really is the predecessor to Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump almost ran this campaign like an insult comic would. Right? If you imagine Jon Stewart running from the left, he would be running almost a, a parallel campaign to what Donald Trump did on the right. right? Saying politically incorrect things, getting people up in arms, uh, making jokes, being funny, being entertaining. Well, Jon Stewart can't stand this because when the left realizes, when they look in the mirror and they realize that Donald Trump is just the negative of their photograph, it makes them absolutely insane. Right? This happened to Barack Obama too. He's lost his mind and now he's back out talking again because he couldn't shut up for more than literally 10 days. He had to come out and say something. Right? So Jon Stewart... Uh, was on, uh, who was he on, Colbert last night? And, uh, and so here's Stephen Colbert not playing the character that made him famous and successful, but playing himself, who's an absolute ratings loser, with Jon Stewart. And Jon Stewart comes out, you know, making fun of Donald Trump by wearing a dead rodent on his head. There can't be any more of these executive orders. I just he's don't see... He's got more. He's got more. Trust me. He, he's got more. <laughs> John, I, uh, I have to say, I, I, I love your outfit. Is this, uh, is this, is this your Donald Trump impression? I thought this is how men dress now. I thought this is... The president sets men's fashion, and, uh, this is, I saw the inauguration, super long tie, uh, dead animal on head. Boom. Okay, and this is what they think is going to defeat Donald Trump? The left is just doubling down on stupid here. If they think they can mock Trump into oblivion with the same old jokes, I mean, this is old, this is hack stuff. This isn't even good material. Like, Donald Trump is rife for comedy because, come on, gang. But this is hackery of the highest order. And if you had an 11th grader write a skit about Donald Trump for, the, for their high school class, you had a 7th grader do it for their middle school class, this is pretty much what they'd come up with. Right, it's a, a long red tie, and look, I have a dead animal on my head, ha, 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 ha. Okay, that joke is, has been made about Donald Trump about a thousand times. You want to make jokes about Trump, there are a thousand jokes you can make about Donald Trump. I made one earlier, actually, talking about jurisprudence, and I said that the, it, it was sort of obscene, so I guess I can't say it. In any case, there are plenty of jokes you can make about Donald Trump, but the left doesn't know how to make them because the left doesn't take him seriously enough. And the fact is, you can't make jokes about something unless you actually take it a little bit seriously. You have to take it a little bit seriously in order to make a good joke, because if you don't respect the, the other side, then you're never going to be able to joke with any sort of truth about them. They just turn into a parody. And all you can do is do what, what Stuart usually did, which was just make a face into the camera. It's the easiest thing in the world. Tucker Carlson now does it to the left. It's very, very simple. Right? You just have somebody from the left on, and then you just make this face into camera. And then the entire crowd goes wild and everybody's very happy and all this stuff. But Stuart doesn't have that anymore. And so he's relegated to doing sixth grade humor bits that are just really, really terrible. Meanwhile, Whoopi Goldberg can't hold herself in. It's amazing. The Democrats, again, they, they cannot stop with the over-the-top rhetoric about Trump. It's, they, they just can't help themselves. They have to go over the top on every element. So here's Whoopi Goldberg talking about Donald Trump. And it's not just that she disagrees with what Trump is doing. Donald Trump is now, you guessed it, the Taliban. 
We have a leader who has repeatedly de demeaned women, right. wants to defund organizations that benefit women, calling on the media to shut up, specifically wants to give preferential treatment based on religion. Uh, are these values really much different than the Taliban's? Mm. I mean... Yes. They are. It turns out that Donald Trump is not the Taliban. He's not in favor of honor killings. Donald Trump, in fact, it's to stop the Taliban from coming in the country that he's implementing some of these immigration policies. That is the basic idea behind all of this. And I'd be very surprised if in the future his immigration moratorium does not extend to Afghanistan. Okay, the fact is Donald Trump's entire stated purpose with regard to stopping an influx of immigrants from countries like Yemen and Somalia is because he doesn't want the culture of certain areas of the world infiltrating. What he means by that is radical Islam. It's not a Muslim ban, because radical Islam and Islam are not the same thing. But it is an attempt to fight the infiltration of radical Islam into the West. So no, Donald Trump is not like the Taliban. The idea that Donald Trump is the Taliban because he is, at least in policy, pro-life. The idea that Donald Trump is the Taliban because Donald Trump doesn't want me to pay for your contraceptives. The idea that Donald Trump is the Taliban because Donald Trump is undertaking immigration reform that is in large part moderate. I mean, it really is. Again, of the 10 most populous Muslim countries on earth, nine of them are still able to send whoever they want to the United States. Citizens from those countries can enter. And there are going to be lots of exceptions to Donald Trump's new immigration policy. The Democrats cannot help themselves. The left has to, they have to, portray Donald Trump as Satan more than Satan. And there, there, is, there is something here that I think is kind of fascinating. And that is, on both sides, on both sides of the aisle, there's a tendency to attribute to the other side some sort of masterful genius. So on the left, instead of them just saying, Donald Trump, kind of incompetent, doing some things I don't like, meh, right? Which is, if you're a leftist, that's sort of what you would be saying if you're a relatively rational leftist at this point. Donald Trump is doing things I don't like, but man, he really doesn't even know what he's doing. I mean, this is pretty incompetent. That's, that's what, if I were on the left, that's what I would be saying at this point. But instead of doing that, they have to attribute to Donald Trump's satanic, all-knowing power. Right, Donald Trump is secretly the Taliban. He's secretly Hitler. He secretly has a plan to take over everything and ruin it. Right? And on the right, we used to do the same thing with Obama. It wasn't just that Obama was incompetent in the rollout of Obamacare. It was all part of his evil plan. Right? Everything that, that Obama did was all part. It was all part of the plan. Right? It was, it was all part of this evil, evil plan. Here's the truth. Most of the people in government suck at their jobs. Because most people in America suck at their jobs. Most adults suck at everything. Okay, the great lie of being an adult is that other adults know what they're doing. They generally don't. We all sort of muddle through, and then we hope for the best. The same is true in government. Because we attribute this level of mastery to government, we think it matters so much who heads the government, and when someone we like is in charge, we want that person to have more power. Because after all, if he's our side, we think he's the master of the universe, right? So when Donald Trump botched this, this executive order rollout, he had people saying it's 40 chess. It's 40 chess. No, it's not 40 chess, okay? If it's 40 chess, it's the kind of 40 chess like in Star Wars where you don't play chess with the Wookiee because he gets mad and rips out your arms, right? It's not actually Donald Trump playing four-dimensional chess in time, right? That's not what's going on here. But because there are so many people who have a religious belief that our leaders know what they're doing, they say, give them more power, they know what they're doing. It hasn't been true for 100 years. We've muddled through anyway, but it hasn't been true for 100 years. You want to actually have a better country? Stop treating the people in government as though they're experts and know what they're doing all the time with evil plans or good plans and just say, you know what, whether they're evil, whether they're good, let's just cut the power of government totally and then it won't matter because they're incompetent. It won't matter if they're evil, it won't matter if they're good, they can't do anything. Right? What I would prefer is if we treated Washington, D.C. like it was the DMV and took as much power away as humanly possible. Okay? This, this, everybody is trying to turn 
Donald Trump into Darth Vader on the left. And on the right, everybody tried to turn Barack Obama into Darth Vader. And I listen, I think Obama was in many ways more competent than Trump is at a lot of things. And I think he had more plans than Trump does. I think Trump is pretty ad hoc. But, Donald, but, but Obama wasn't in charge of things either. It turns out very few people are actually Darth Vader. Very few people are actually capable of being Darth Vader. And so that means that we should actually take power away from them. And the, if you're really that worried about Darth Vader, by the way, on the left, if you're really that worried about Donald Trump being Darth Vader, how about this? Instead of him running the empire, let's downsize the empire so it's just the most Eisley DMV. And then you don't have to worry about it. That'd be the easiest way to fix this problem. Okay, time for a little bit of Bibble Talk. So uh, this week's Parsha, this week's Torah portion, the Yudin, every week we read a different portion of the Bible. We, are, we go through it chronologically. This week's Parsha is Parshat Bo, which is uh, in Exodus. So this is a section, it's all surrounding the Exodus from Egypt. So this is the section uh, in which they talk about the ceremonies of Passover. So it says, you shall have, this is Exodus 12, 5 through 8. You shall have a perfect male lamb in its first year. You may take it either from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it for inspection until the 14th day of this month, and the entire congregation of the community of Israel shall slaughter it in the afternoon. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel on the houses in which they will eat it. And on this night they shall eat the flesh roasted over the fire and unleavened cakes with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Okay, so there are a couple of things that are kind of interesting about this. Number one, the Jews are still in Egypt. And what this is, this is the ultimate expression of faith for two reasons. One is the sheep were worshipped as gods in ancient Egypt. And God is ordering the Jews, you're going to take their God, you're going to slaughter it, and you're going to put their blood on your doorpost. So all the Egyptians know which one of you did it. That's a pretty brazen statement of faith, right? If, you, if you're talking about jumping headfirst into, into a religious commitment, that would be it right there. You're living in a hostile foreign country, and you decide that you're going to— I mean, imagine that you were living in—imagine in, that you're living in Afghanistan, you decide to draw a cartoon of Muhammad and then put it on your front door, right? That's basically what they're talking about right here. And that is— an incredible expression of faith that the Jews are expected to undergo. A lot of Jews didn't. One of the one of the midrash and one of the kind of commentaries about how how the Exodus happened says that there were more Jews than the ones who just left. They said that nine out of ten, eight out of ten, nine out of ten Jews actually died in Egypt during the plague of darkness, uh, and only one in ten Jews was actually capable of leaving. And that's because in order for you to leave a society, you have to burn all your bridges, and that is what the Jews did here. That's expression of faith number one. Expression of faith number two is that last verse there. Where where it says they are going to eat unleavened cakes. So the, the whole story about why Jews eat matzah on Passover is that Jews eat matzah on Passover because they were in such a hurry that they had to leave, right? They didn't have time to watch the bread rise. And that's why matzah probably was more like pita bread that they just forgot to put the yeast in. And so it's, you know, like, like pita chips, basically. Um, but well, here's the problem with that particular commentary. They're commanded to eat the unleavened cakes before they leave. They're still in Egypt. So God could have said, you can make yourself some bread and then you can leave. But what God is actually saying is, in your life, in your material life, you have to treat my promises that are going to happen, you have to treat those as though they are already happening. You have to treat the promises that I make to you about good and bad as though they are already happening in your life. You have faith that they will come true, so much so that you are actually, you're actually taking, taking what's going to happen and bringing it back in time and eating the unleavened cakes before you actually have to leave in a hurry. And that's why it's, it's fascinating, you know, every, every Passover, which is, I think, my favorite holiday, every Passover, you say that you're supposed to treat the Exodus as though you yourself underwent it, because the idea is that at a certain point for Jews, there will be a Messiah, and that will require you to, to change your lifestyle, will change how you live. You have, to, you have to try and change your lifestyle now. 
if you're going to take God's promises seriously, if you're going to take his vows seriously, you have to take it on faith that he's going to fulfill his promises. You don't have to take people on faith. They're going to fulfill their promises. You can celebrate when they do, right? I mean, Donald Trump kept his promise today. That's fantastic. But God, you actually do have to take on faith that he's going to fulfill his promises. The ultimate act of faith is saying to God, I don't understand why I'm eating matzah in the middle of Egypt when I can have perfectly well have bread right now. And God saying, listen, here's how the story's going to go. And you saying, okay. And that's, that's what an act of tremendous faith the Exodus was. It wasn't just about God embracing the Jews. It was about Jews embracing the idea that there is a controlling force in human history and that you have to have faith in that controlling force in human history, which should make, I think, everybody feel better no matter what side of the political aisle you're on. There is a future to the human race. There is a future here, uh, and it's not in our hands. It's not in Donald Trump's hands either. It, you, you do all you can, obviously, but it's in the end going to be in God's hands. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.